Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Catherine. Really excited to have you on the show. You have grown tremendously as a founder over the past few years. And for the context is that we came together because you had this crazy hashtag, crazy idea for making the world a better place for cord blood banking and so on and so forth. And I have been privileged to be an angel and early supporter. And yet I think you've obviously surpassed me on so many dimensions in terms of learning. So excited to have you on the show. Catherine, could you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm the founder of Angel Health. We help pregnant parents keep stem cells from their umbilical cords, so essentially can help protect their child's future and use those stem cells for future disease treatment purposes. I founded it in honor of my brother. He had cerebral palsy and needed cord blood stem cells, and it was pretty difficult to find a match for him. So we're now making sure that other families don't experience the same issue. That's basically the crux of what I do, and I'm based in LA. Amazing. And how did you first come across this issue? I mean, obviously, this is something that you cared about it from a family perspective. Could you share a little bit more about that journey? When I was three and my brother was one, he was in a near drowning accident that gave him cerebral palsy. Before that, he was completely healthy, but then suddenly couldn't walk or talk. And so my family was looking into treatments for his cerebral palsy and found that cord blood stem cells was the most promising opportunity to be able to treat cerebral palsy, mainly because children who are able to receive their own cord blood back into their body generally see motor and social skill improvements. So it's not a complete cure, but definitely really promising. And so we were hoping to find a similar option for my brother, but we couldn't find one because it's pretty difficult to find match, as I mentioned, if you're a person of color, mixed race, especially. And I've just always been sort of a part of like social justice discourse and human rights and really being a part of discussions around that. So I think like this issue in particular spoke to me because it's not only something that could help impact a child's future and health, but it's also a matter of bringing more equality to healthcare options and accessibility. That makes sense. And yet you also chose to become a creator and eventually a founder to do that. I think there are so many people who obviously are adjacent to that. So people choose to buy cord blood banking. Other people choose to volunteer, maybe even be working as an employee in this space. But you chose to be a creator and a founder. So could you share a little bit more about how that transition happened? I was working as a product designer as my first job out of college. And then my brother suddenly passed away. And so that was really what motivated me to do something that would have been able to help him. I feel like my strengths lie in social media. So I turned to social media first as a means of being able to create this business because I knew I wanted it to be in this space and really be able to speak to pregnant parents in this way about my story and things of that nature. So for me, my first inclination was to turn to social media as a tool to do that. So I started producing TikToks and creating a bunch of content around not only my story, but also just pregnancy in general, talking about different issues that pregnant parents can potentially face, and also more healthcare and accessibility related issues, things like Roe v. Wade I've made content on. So I now have around 150,000 followers on TikTok. 
So that was sort of my first step in the founder journey. So it was always with the intention of being a creator that is a creator acting for the service of being a founder in a sense. Yeah, I would say I'm a founder first and a creator second. Yeah, that was sort of my first method of being able to determine demand and response to the product. And then I set up the supply chain and started launching immediately off of my TikTok. So, you know, a little bit of chicken and egg there, right? Which is that, you know, you were a creator and a founder, which came first, you know, putting yourself out there, right? As a creator, putting yourself out there as someone who's passionate about a topic, it takes something, right? So could you share maybe in that first month of choosing to start that journey of sharing, how did you feel? Were you feeling like it was more about building this something or was it feel like more like you wanted to raise awareness about a topic? Yeah, I really wanted to raise awareness, but I also wanted to get a sense of how people were responding to it and talking about it themselves. So I think reading the comments for me is really insightful. I initially started just talking about the concept of cord blood banking in addition to pregnancy. And then I started talking about my personal story in relation to cord blood banking and pregnancy, and then specifically the business and cord blood banking and pregnancy and our product and what we offer. And now that's sort of like the main part of my content. And what was it about that initial reaction that you got from folks? Obviously, it was a positive since you kept going, but what was that initial signal that you felt like, okay, this is something I should keep doing versus this is an experiment that doesn't really work out? There was never so much a sense of like, oh, should I do this? And content is a litmus test for that. It was always, I'm going to do this and content is how I determine how I'm going to do it. Like I always knew that I would pursue this business and was always working on the sort of business side of things, even as I was making content, but it was just finding what messaging in particular resonated. And so it was the experimentation on that sort of like channel market fit as opposed to like product market fit. Yeah, I was just testing different forms of messaging and really understanding what resonates. And I think the comments in particular that were insightful were things along the lines of like, you finally make me feel confident or just like emotions that I was able to evoke in viewers. And if they were able to voice that back to me or like reflect my own rhetoric back to me. So like if I talk about like there's little things that I've said in the past, like you have like sparkles as opposed to like stretch marks and you should view yourself as a unicorn if you're pregnant because you're like doing something super magical and you have something really cool sticking out of you similar to a unicorn things like that then people will reflect the language back to me and especially about our products people were like saying things uh, along the lines of like you make me feel really confident about like my decision and my birth decisions I feel like it's the emotional response that was really demonstrating to me that this was like the right way to go. The interesting part of the topic, of course, is that there's an emotional part about becoming a mother, right? You know, the pregnancy, Mm -hmm. the delivery and becoming a parent. And I think cord blood is a function, right? It's a moment of time. It's such a crazy thing. I mean, I've decided to do cord blood banking for my two daughters, but it's such a crazy decision to make. You know, you're not thinking about it, right? You're thinking about everything else. And then you're saying to yourself, okay, I should have an insurance policy in case something goes wrong years down the road, which is what you saw in your own family. So it's almost like buying an insurance policy, but for something you don't really want to think about, and you have to do that within a very short amount of time. So how do you think about decompressing or simplifying or kind of like organizing that conversation for folks? I think it's just about like, it's not like we are an external part of the conversation that suddenly parents have to consider. It's like we become the conversation. So we not only talk about cord blood banking, but I think that's why I also make content about pregnancy in general. Like I talk about what to expect in each week, or like, this is like what you should bring in your birth bag, that type of thing. 
really just establishing trust around like the actual conversation of what folks are doing to prepare for birth. And then they can see cord blood banking as like a part of that, as opposed to like this external decision that they have to make on top of every other decision. It's just like a collective sort of like, this is the right way to go and the right resource that we're turning to decide. Just try to have us come forth with a lot of empathy for the birth journey and parenthood in general, and really try to make sure all of our sources are evidence-based and truly backed by science, and that we have a lot of folks with a lot of domain authority and domain experts that are able to express those views. I think it's just about like coming forward with like a true heart, as opposed to just sort of like, we're taking your money, you better make a decision on this right now, which is, I think, how a lot of people perceive corporate banking in the past. What are the common, I think, issues that parents are thinking about? Because it's mentioned, like, for example, packing for the delivery bag versus should I choose to bank for stem cells? So how do you think about that journey from your perspective? It kind of depends. Like I've seen parents that sort of don't really feel inclined to make any decisions or have an opinion on their birth until like eight or like basically right before their birth happens. So like eight months, I've talked to parents who are like seven and a half and they're kind of like, oh, maybe I should like start thinking about this. But then I have also met parents who are like just find out that they're pregnant and then they're like immediately beginning to plan. So I think it really just depends on your personality. But I think like one thing that I've seen that's true across the whole ecosystem of perinatal companies is that there's just a lot of noise and not a lot of signal. So there's like trillions and trillions of pregnancy related blogs, but it's hard to tell like which resources are factual, which are like really backed by science and things like that. So even things like placenta encapsulation, like eating your placenta has become sort of a common pop cultural artifact in history. But in reality, there's not like a ton of science that actually backs the process of doing it. And in fact, has resulted in some harm and infection and parents and children. But it's hard to determine that like signal behind what people are discussing. So I think it's just a matter of like developing that signal and really making sure that parents feel like they can trust their resources and that it aligns with their own personal values. Yeah, it's just about the parents feeling confident. What's interesting, and I've always appreciated about this, is that on TikTok, you're Catherine the person, right? And you explain all of this. <laughs> and then when I'm talking and collaborating with you, you're so science and fact-driven. And I think this is interesting bridge between these two, yeah. I wouldn't say modes or modalities of communication. So how do you think about that? How do you bridge that? How do you translate, for example, what you're saying about the facts and the signals to, like you said, what really resonates on TikTok, which is about the emotionality and what it evokes in people. I try to do a lot of like just signaling my sources to make sure that folks know that it's legitimate information. And I just try to always tell the truth and do my best with revealing where my information is coming from. So very often I'll like green screen PubMed articles or things like that and peer reviewed studies and research papers that are able to just demonstrate like where my information is coming from. Because I think for sure, there's a lot of people on TikTok who are just kind of like talking about random things. And sometimes it's even a joke where people pursue it as the truth. I think it's just about like sourcing and then having legitimacy with the sources, like having really credible sources rather than just like a random blog. And as you do that, what does it take to add that final step, right, of that, like you said, emotion or emotionality? Because I think what you're saying is you're choosing in this space to be more signal oriented. But how do you make the science be relevant for somebody that's the other direction? 
Yeah, I mean, I just tried to understand it myself and think about it from their point of view and really empathize with what pregnant parents would care about. And then in the first like few seconds of the content, I tried to illustrate why it would be relevant for them. Even things like if you're pregnant and you have an anterior placenta, I think that like immediately speaks to people of like, oh, I have an anterior placenta and like I have experienced like my baby kicking in this way rather than like how people typically describe it. So they tend to tune into that kind of information and feel a little bit more attached to it in a sense and just seen. So I think just like people like feeling as though folks see them, I think is really important. So that's sort of like an emotional aspect that I bring in. And then from there, bring the like facts and science behind like what it is that they would want to know about. What does this creation process look like for you? Do you sit down and write it out? Is this something that you're out, I don't know, walking and then you just bumps into your phone and then you just kind of like write it on a notes app? How does that process of all you just discussed, how does that work for you? I mean, I look through like trending content in general under like the pregnancy niche and a lot of my algorithms have now been geared towards that. So I feel like if I open any social media app, I tend to just see like, ads and like suggested content that's in my niche anyway. So I get a sense of what people are talking about. Also look at my comments for inspiration to get a sense of like what it is that my viewers care about and what they talk about. So that's where I draw inspiration from. But other than that, I honestly don't do too much planning for my content because I feel like I'm a more effective public speaker when it's off the cuff. So when it's too rehearsed and I think about it too much and there's like this whole like written effort that has to be done. So I try to just speak off the cuff and then afterwards just watch it from like trying to put on the eyes of someone that I'm trying to reach with this content. Yeah. Then from there, it's just about editing and making sure that it's really going to capture the relevant target audience's eyes. So like I mentioned, the like, if you're pregnant and have like this kind of placenta, then I'll make that a part of the edit. And then adding subtitles and other things that just makes it more accessible as a form of consumable content. And what's interesting is that you've done this and you're also doing this primarily on TikTok and so notice that you're starting to do other, you know, verticals, right? You know, other channels as well, social networks. So how do you see the different channels? Do you feel like TikTok is the future? That's it? Ride or die? Or how do you see that playing out? I mean, we'll see if TikTok is the future. There's been a lot of debate on Capitol Hill about its existence <laughs> in the US. So We'll see. But I definitely think the future is in short form video because I think TikTok has really proven that as like the next form of consumable content. I think secondarily, Instagram for sure will continue, but people are looking for more authentic content, which is why I think certain apps like Be Real have been really successful. And YouTube, I think, has the best engagement. So although I think short form videos will be the most popular in the future, it's still always going to hold true that if you can capture the audience's attention for a long form video, then you can capture their attention for anything because there's so much demand in the attention economy that if you can manage the demand with a long form piece, then you know that you have this audience like cooked essentially. So if someone can dominate YouTube, then you've pretty much mastered it all. But there's for sure an increase in short form consumption. These are all your learnings as a founder and as a creator. And what's been interesting is to see you kind of like go through the steps, right? And I think the early stages when we had a conversation, which was, okay, you know, how do we see the market to building product market fit to monetizing to actually fundraising. So what would you say have been the lessons that you've had as you kind of like evolve from, as you said, an aspiring founder testing the market with content to 
being a founder and the evolution personally? I feel like I've learned more than I have in any other period of my life. Like fundraising is definitely one aspect of it. So I think how to run like a proper fundraising process have been trying to read a lot. So books like Fundraising by Ryan Breslow, I think was really helpful for my fundraising process. And then even just like how to run an effective team and build an effective culture that makes folks on the team feel welcome. So I've been reading books like High Growth Handbook and Traction to really solidify those. And then I think with marketing in particular and content creation, because it's so new, there's actually not that many really helpful resources in existence. So it's just a matter of like doing it and being able to cultivate your own learnings. I think the fact that I've just been on social media for so many years, even prior to my business, like I've always been really interested in social media and posting content. Like I was like a Twitch streamer for a month and stuff like that. So I've done a bunch of different experiments that I feel like has helped me more deeply understand the different segments of people that are attracted to different platforms. You mentioned that this has been the greatest time of personal learning. So what about it makes it a time of accelerated learning for you versus you went to Wellesley, which is obviously a great place of learning as well, or at least they tried to be. And obviously, you know, you've worked as well. So what makes this period, I think, of accelerated curve for you? I think it's that there's so much responsibility involved. Like when you're a founder, it's not just like not only your companies, but your fiduciary responsibility to your investors, as well as like just a personal and fiduciary responsibility to your teammates, just like your well-being in general. I feel like a lot of founders end up tying their mental health to their business's well-being as well, because it just becomes like a part of your identity. So then you have like a personal duty to yourself to really make sure that the business continues because there's so much responsibility and the stakes are so high for founders. Like I've tried to take in like every action that I've done, at least like cultivate some sort of learning from it versus like at Wellesley, it's just sort of like you have like tuition and that's kind of the main incentive in a sense to like really learn. But other than that, there's a lot of like socializing and distractions and you can like justify it by like, well, this is what people do in college anyways. But when it comes to a business, it's really you pushing forward the whole ship. I think because of the weight of everything, I just really take everything very, very seriously and try to soak up as much information as I can. As you think about the acceleration, what has helped you stay on top of it, right? So you mentioned reading books has been one way that you accelerate that learning curve. The other one is taking on more ownership and accountability. What other reflections have you had about how you've accelerated that learning curve? Yeah, I think just sort of turning yourself as well as your business into like an operating system. So sort of creating an OS for it. Like even for myself, most recently, I've started having like a personal notion in the same way that my business has like a hub notion. and We have all these like sub notions. And so I've been starting to do the same thing for myself of like things I learn in business, things that like spark joy for me, like books that I've read that I've liked, quotes that have inspired me and have just tried to create like a second brain in a sense. There's a book called The Second Brain that I actually haven't read, but I've read articles about the concept of it. And so I think this idea of creating a second brain and creating an OS for yourself is something else that can really help with that and is something that I think most founders I know come to a point where they do the same. As you think about that, what advice have you gotten over the past few years that you felt has particularly resonated with you? You mentioned about talking to other founders and hearing about a second brain. Any advice that stood out for you? I think just like 
the Facebook value of like move fast, break things. I've heard like in many, many different variations of the same ethos. And I think that that always really resonates with me because I have always been the type of person that really likes to like source a lot of information before making a decision and consult with experts in the field and things like that. Like I have been learning that as a founder, like sometimes you just really have to take on the decision yourself and move forward with it. Even if it's as little as like, how do we go about like editing this like piece of content? Should we do it this way or this way? But it's sort of like, you just need to make a decision and move forward. And in the future, you can modify it. Just moving fast and being okay with breaking things. As you think through that, what has been the positives you've seen from moving fast and breaking things from your personal perspective versus I think times that he hasn't worked out? Sounds like you've decided on more on moving fast and breaking things, but I'm just kind of curious about your reflections about integrating that mindset. I don't really have any regrets, I guess, like the, for, with the mindset, because I think it's like, if you fail, you still learn from it. Yeah. Upon reflection, like the mindset is something that should be employed across all startups because I've also met like quite a few founders who just get like stuck on an idea. They don't know how to execute. They're like researching for months. And then nothing really happens just because they were like scared to make a decision or like didn't feel confident in their own decision. Yeah, you just like, you won't move forward. So you may as well die trying. <laughs> die trying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Why die trying? Yeah. I feel like you should experience things rather than not. I really, really love like TV and movies and things like that. But I've always strived to live a life that makes me feel like my own life would be more enriching than watching TV. So I usually use like how much TV I yearn to watch as like KPI for how enriching my own life is. <laughs> yeah, you always want to live a life that is more scintillating than any TV show you could find. So you may as well try everything that you can, even if it means that you'll fail. And it's better than being stagnant and watching other people's lives. You measure how much you're kind of like going through life by how much TV you consume. And you're also creating <laughs> content <laughs> across TikTok and YouTube, right? Which is our generation's television. I always do remember personally that I was like, oh, I'm pretty proud I don't watch that much TV. And then I was like to myself, wait. And I looked at my YouTube, my Netflix, and all of that. And I was like, oh, wait, I am watching just as much TV. So how do you feel about that? I mean, obviously, you know, there's always that push to like produce and also to consume. So how do you feel about that cotomy or that trade-off between those two sides, personally? I would say you should definitely try producing content, I guess, if you're looking to do like one or the other. Because like I said, like you always want to be living a life that's worth watching, not watching others the way that I've always seen it. But also like I have never shied away from the camera and just find social media like really interesting. And even things like when I was in high school, I used to model and stuff like that. So I just always enjoyed being center stage, essentially. So in that way, content just kind of comes naturally to me. But I think like consumption of social media to me feels like a different form of consumption versus like TV and movies, because you're watching like really, really organic content for the most part that is like usually one person's vision or one person's take and mindset on the world. So I think TikTok has actually opened up like a lot of empathy because there's so many memes. And I think memes make people feel closer to one another because there's so many 
experiences that everyone thinks is so unique to them. Like a few days ago, I saw a tweet that was like, I've never had an original thought. And it's because you'll see a tweet that or like a TikTok or anything that has a thought that you thought was original. But in reality, there are really no original thoughts. Wow, I love that point about there being no original thoughts left in the world. (laughs) I don't actually think it's a sad thing. I think it's a beautiful thing because that's why people uh, assemble in communities when they have the same thoughts. I want to double click on that, right? So that's just <laughs> it. the beautiful thing is that you get to join a community where everyone has the same thought. And I think that's a good example. Reddit isn't great, but subreddit is where the magic happens, right? Where everybody's looking at, you know, stopping drinking or everybody's looking at personal motivation, you know? So these subreddits are very, I want to say niche, but I think it's hard to find, right? So what are your reflections around building community where everyone is thinking or aspiring the same? Yeah, like a really great thing to be a part of. I've always loved like the idea of being a part of communities and building communities because it's what sort of like the core of society is built on. So like human nature is to like want to know about other people's lives and to share our own. And that is best done through a community. It's really just it comes down to like exhibiting empathy for others experiences and also being vulnerable enough and honest enough with yourself to be able to share your own so that others can empathize with you. So that's sort of my general philosophy on on community building is just the foundation has to be empathy. I think empathy is the tricky part in today's world because it feels one-sided. Obviously, when I'm consuming TikTok or YouTube or Instagram, obviously, I feel that empathy that's being channeled on me. But from a production basis, I've done, as a creator, you know, sometimes you're just facing a camera, a mirror. Consuming it, it does feel like there's that empathy, but when you're producing it, there's a bit of otherness. How do you deal with that, I think? Whenever I'm filming content, I never think of it as like, oh, I'm looking at a camera. I always think of it as like, I am looking at a camera for this to be edited, for this to be seen by pregnant parents whose lives I hope to impact. So to me, there's still like a huge amount of empathy. In fact, maybe more so because there is something really special about like the promise of a lot of reach, which on TikTok is usually like undeniable because of the way that the algorithm is built. It's different than having like a one-on-one conversation. Making content is a place that it'll definitely be able to be amplified. And because of that, it's almost more likely that you'll find people that resonate with your content versus the one-on-one conversation. So I think that's why vlogs and like the nature of just like get ready with me videos and stuff like that has become so popular because they're able to find other people that are having the same unoriginal thoughts. Just like great community around that. You made me laugh at the word vlogs because (laughs) video logs, it came out super hot 10 years ago. It disappeared and it feels like it's coming back, right? Yeah. What do you think is the appeal of vlogs and video logs, right? Journals, right? Why do you think it went away? Why do you think it came back? I feel like I didn't even know a time when it wasn't popular. (laughs) I didn't consume that much YouTube until I was like 21. But I feel like a lot of my friends did. So like since we were like 13, they would watch like Emma Chamberlain vlogs or whoever was getting really popular or makeup videos are really popular. So But I think that they've become really popular because people crave that social interaction. And it's probably like the least intensive personal consumption that you can do to still feel social interaction. So I think vlogs, it's sort of like the same feeling that you get from FaceTiming a friend, but you don't have to have the energy and exertion to reciprocate the interaction. 
which is something that I learned when I was like streaming on Twitch for like a month, like a goal to stream for at least an hour every day for a month just to test out the platform. This was prior to me being a founder, but I think that that was really insightful because Twitch is really like very much so different than any other social media platform versus like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, like they all somewhat have the same feel. But to me, like Twitch felt very different. And I think it's because there are way more people viewing than creating versus like on Instagram, like people will post, almost everyone will like post one photo in their life, but not everyone will Twitch stream, but a lot of people will view Twitch streams. So yeah, I got like quite a few viewers who would comment like pretty regularly on my Twitch streams. And I would ask if they want to join me and like we can co-stream or whatever. And a lot of people would say no. So that's when I realized that they liked the social interaction with me, but didn't want the same like sense of exertion yeah, sociability that's required with like also producing content and engaging in a real conversation. That's an interesting theory or construct that you're putting there, right? Which is that there's a differing levels of social interaction that people want to have, right? In terms of effort versus on, on your end or the creator's end, it's about that point of view, right? So how do you feel about that? Is that the trends? I think, I guess society is moving towards that direction. Yeah, I think people are just becoming more and more honest about social anxiety I see a lot of memes about social anxiety. And I think definitely like as we move to like an increasingly remote world, people can be more open about the fact that they have major social anxiety and they can receive the human need to socialize can be fulfilled through social media. I think that's why people even could survive like the lockdowns during the pandemic, because we have FaceTime and YouTube and you can consume other people's content. Yeah, you can just be honest about the fact that you have social anxiety and not have to confront it and get over it. The interesting part is that the world is increasingly trending towards it, right? And I think 100 years ago, you either turned up for the tea party or you didn't turn up for the tea party, right? You went up for lunch or you didn't have lunch. There was a few opportunities to be part of a gallery and you're watching the musicians play on stage and they're producing and you're kind of watching. But now, you know, it's everywhere, right? I can go for a walk. I'm, I'm engaged in terms of consumption and interacting by pressing a like button or heart button but the other side is a different conversation so there's a differential of that piece so i guess the world's gonna trend more towards it feels like a lot of folks don't like that future right you know they say like it's bad or evil or people don't know how to get out anymore or kids don't know how to socialize you know what do you say to that i don't know like not something that can even be combated because i think it's just due to the fact that like the world is so dynamic like back when people didn't have social anxiety they also didn't have much to be anxious about because there was just like not a lot of stimulation 200 years ago, for instance, versus now. Like I remember my Nana would always tell me like Pride and Prejudice is so long and boring because that's all they could do during that time was like sit around and talk about marriage versus like now. I forget the exact number, but I think it's like every human consumes equivalent to 74 newspapers worth of information every day. And that's sort of like the foundation of the theories behind this idea of a second brain and creating a second brain is like, how do you take all the information that you're receiving, process it in an efficient way and be able to recall it later on when you need to. So that's why I started writing down like my favorite quotes and books and things like that to really build upon this idea of a second brain. But because we have so much stimulation, like there's only so much that we can take. So I think an increase in social anxiety is probably natural and can't really be stopped as like tech and society advances. Yeah, you just have to choose what you want to be stimulated by. And I think it's kind of interesting because people have like, there's almost like a Gen Z trend to take on less stimulation. I've seen quite a few TikToks of people buying flip phones and like throwing away their iPhone. So even things like that. 
yeah, as stimulation grows, social anxiety could grow, but likewise, like a conscious decrease in stimulation will probably also grow. I'd love for you to share about a time that you personally have been brave. I feel like I've been like brave my whole life. I don't know. When I was 12, I wrote like a hundred page memoir because I was like, my life is so tragic. (laughs) When I was three and my brother was one, my first memory is my brother's near drowning accident. So I feel like, although at the time I wasn't like consciously trying to be brave, like I was really trying to just process everything at once. I had a brother that was like perfectly healthy and would like follow me around and like do everything that I did to the point that like my mom said that when I was younger, I would get annoyed. And then suddenly I didn't have that anymore. And I didn't have like a brother whose soccer games I could go to or things like that, that like, I felt like I was like grieving that like potential experience like throughout my life. And then when he passed away, suddenly it was like a separate grieving experience. That whole like typical American dream, like nuclear family vision, losing different pieces of that, like my parents getting divorced or what have you. Yeah, been something that I've had to brace. So I feel like I've always felt like brave for just like navigating that. You know, I think that personal loss obviously is tough, right? And I think for a lot of folks as they grieve, I think they process that grief in different ways, right? And so you're right. I think we kind of laugh a little bit at a memoir, but I think your life was tough, right? And because you're dealing with that emotional processing as well. My last question is, you know, for folks who obviously are driven by a sense of mission, a sense of loss, a sense of processing. Is there any advice they have for folks who are trying to kind of like make that their purpose? Was there any advice that you would give to them? I think it depends on how you want to channel grief. Like I think some people don't want to continue to be reminded. For me, it felt okay. But I honestly never used to talk about my brother's accident because I really don't like the idea of like soliciting pity or people feeling bad for me. So It wasn't until I started this business that I like really started publicly talking about it. A lot of my friends like wouldn't find out that I had a sibling until I had known them for like a year. I think it just depends on like folks' comfortability with like any grief that they experience. I mean, I really encourage everyone to be a founder. So I think like a business is like the best thing you can build in honor of someone. To me, it's like the most efficient way to create impact. So you can honor someone through that. On that note, I'd love to kind of like, you know, summarize the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first is thank you so much for sharing about your journey from someone who grew up in that family and your own personal experience of grief to how you process that. And more importantly, chose to having channeled that to become a founder to do something about a problem. And in the process of that became what you're more publicly known as is like a TikTok star. But it's just nice to see that juxtaposition, right? And also the sequence of which one is really came first and which one is actually more primary to your personal identity. So that was a really interesting arc and journey as well as to where you are today. Second, I love this part about accelerating your personal learning curves, especially for this last chunk of time from product market fit to fundraising. And I think a lot of your learnings about community, about original thoughts and how everybody's kind of learning from each other in terms of differential social interactions and finding each other and there being the consumption now of 74 newspapers of information every day versus having to sit and discuss Pride and Prejudice because it's the only book that's available. And lastly, I really appreciate, I think, the phrase that you said, which is about just die trying, right? I really appreciate that, I think, uh, spirit that you have about just going for it and just uh, pushing forward every day. So thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is definitely the most meta I've gotten on a podcast, but it was really cool. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.